Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for yet another interview this month, kind of back to back. I know we just did an interview this last weekend, but summer schedules are what they are. So we are just doing what we can to get people on um, and let you guys share your stories. Um, Just so that you know, we do have a couple of races coming up in July for the Looking for a Cure events. Those are going to be taking place in Seattle first um, with Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center and Dr. Stacy, who's also helping to host the I Believe event that's coming up. And that is July 8th. Um, If you want to register, you can head to lookingforacure.org, and we would love, love, love for you to make a team, come and walk with us, or walk virtually, and then just start raising money. Help us raise money and get to, I think our goal is about $20,000 at every one of the races, and if we can hit that goal for the rest of the races, that would be incredible for research in your local area, as well as general research um, that we can do for ocular melanoma. So, the next one coming up is in Palo Alto, which is in California, and that is benefiting uh, half the proceeds will go to Buyer's Eye Institute. So just keep that in mind, get registered, walk with us virtually if you can, and uh, make sure to pay attention to announcements on social media and in the newsletter. Okay, now that that is out of the way, I'm going to introduce our panel today. So we've got four patients who are joining us um, in honor of Pride Month, and they are going to be just sharing their experiences and their stories with ocular melanoma, and then we're also going to just briefly have a conversation about um, medical care for the queer community and how these guys have seen that evolve over time. Um, So we're grateful to have uh, all four of you here with us, and thank you anyone who's joining in live and supporting them, Um, and I guess we'll just take it from there. I'm going to introduce our speakers. So Um, I've got Steven Russell and he's actually from the Jersey area and Alec uh, McKenzie and he is from San Francisco Bay, um, south of San Francisco Bay area. And then William Carp is from Hollywood, Florida and Calissa is from Memphis, Tennessee. And Calissa, how do you say your last name? Is it Neep? Oh, is it Nipe? Knipe? I'm Knipe. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys, all of you for joining us tonight. I know it's super late for Steven over there on the other side of the coast and same with you, William. Uh, Not not at all. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to just kind of run down the order and we're just going to have a a chat about your diagnosis. um, Just kind of what this has been like for you over the course of time. So Steven, can you tell us um, where you or when you were diagnosed and just kind of briefly tell us maybe in two minutes or less, like your diagnosis story? Um, it was in March of, uh, 2008. Um, I had tried to poke my eye out with a pair of sunglasses back in 2007. And I thought it was because of that, that I was seeing this flash of light in my eye. And that went on for several months. I was at a routine uh, optometrist visit and I told her about the flashes. She looked in my eye again and sent me on to a retina specialist the next day. And then a couple days after that, I was at Will's Eye Hospital and they said, come in on Thursday, you're having radiation. Um, Was diagnosed with with melanoma. 
Um, and then the, uh, the biopsy came back and it was, at, at that time we only had monosomy and uh, disomy. The two options, mine was monosomy, which is the worst, um, the most deadly and almost always metastasizes. Um, but my tumor was remarkably small and it is now over 15 years later and I am here and no metastasis. Um, I was treated at Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, which fortunately for me is only an hour and 15 minutes away. <laughs> uh, while I was there, I, I met people who flew in from Ireland and California, and it's like, oh, gee, I drove here. So that's, oh, that's my yeah, story. That's great. And I've, for those of you who are wanting to hear a little bit more in detail about Stephen's story, um, he does share that on the podcast um, in a previous interview. I think it's like somewhere in the first 10 or 15 interviews. Um, so he was gracious enough to come back on and just be a part of this conversation. So thank you. Um, okay. I'm going to run back through Alec. Oh, Calissa's back. Yay. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> I was like, oh no, she disappeared. Um, Alec, what about you? Tell us your diagnosis story just briefly, two minutes or less. Um, so I was diagnosed just over four years ago. Um, my husband and I had taken a vacation away to a little cabin out in the Redwoods for the weekend and it was pouring rain and I spent all weekend reading. I read over a thousand pages um, and I woke up the last morning we were there and I only had half vision in one of my eyes. Um, and I figured I, I had had no previous, no flashing lights, no, no symptoms at all. I thought I had pink eye or I had strained my eye from reading too much. Um, went in to get drops for pink eye and the doctor was like, this is not pink eye. And she referred me to a retina specialist, just like Steven. Um, and they did a couple scans and sent me right to an ocular oncologist the next day. I got in the next morning and it turned out I had a very large tumor in my right eye that had been detaching my retina. And that's why I was losing my sight. Um, the tumor was too large to do radiation with. So I had my eye enucleated or removed for those people that don't know that term. Um, about two weeks after my diagnosis. And now I have a prosthetic eye, which is amazing. It looks just exactly, it's incredible what they can do with them these days. Um, and so I have been going around with monocular vision now for about four and a half years-ish. Oh, and I, I, my doctors are all at Stanford University, Stanford Hospital. I see Dr. Murthunjaya at the Byers Eye Institute, which you just referenced. The fun run's gonna be there in a few weeks. Uh, my family and I will all be there. Uh, and he is an amazing doctor. And just like Stephen, I meet people there who come from all over just to see him. So I feel really lucky to be in a place with such a great doctor. Oh, I feel like that's always great, right? The both of you are kind of on either side of the coastlines and you both have phenomenal doctors that are highly sought after, which is great. Um, William, I'm going to go ahead and have you go next. So tell us, I've actually never heard much of your story, so I'm excited to hear more about this. Um, well, I was actually um, originally uh, diagnosed on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2015, um, was when I got my pre-diagnosis, actually. I'd been, for some time, noticing that my the vision in my left eye was kind of cloudy. And I just figured, you know, it was of an age that I, I figured I had a cataract and wasn't really worried about it and didn't really think anything about it and just kind of went about my business because using both eyes was fine. And my husband actually, you know, finally kind of cajoled me into going to see the eye doctor to see what's going on. And I figured he would tell me I have a cataract. And he told me I had uh, what looked like uh, a, a melanoma in my eye. The eye doctor actually had seen that before. 
And I had six years previous uh, been diagnosed with cutaneous melanoma. So I get all kinds of, you know, body checks. They check every part of my body except my eyeballs. And that's the place where, where then I, I got another one unrelated. Um, but anyway, so he referred me to um, Timothy Murray, who runs the, who started the Baskin Palmer um, uh, melanoma, uh, uh, ocular melanoma clinic and had started out his own program at Murray Ocular Oncology. And I was able to see him within several days. I think it was uh, the following Tuesday. And um, they were able to confirm the diagnosis. It was a choroidal melanoma, medium-sized. I mean, everything about it was the middle, you know. Um, it was on my, it was resting on my optic nerve. And within two weeks, I was, you know, in, um, and got black radiation. Um, they did do the castle testing, and I was a 1B. Um, and, um, and since then, I, I go every six weeks for Aviston injections, um, to, which has been preserving my vision. Um, so even though the tumor was on my um, optic nerve, um, I, ha I still have very good functional vision in, in that eye, as well as obviously the other eye. And like Stephen and Alec, people, you know, I meet these people every six weeks. I've got some people who are on the same pattern as I'm at, you know, as I'm on. And, and they, they come from all over the world to see Dr. Murray. So we're all so lucky that, that we have had the ability to get to world-class ocular oncologists. You know, and when I'm there, I see people from, you know, Nebraska and, and Taiwan and just like all over the world and just think, boy, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 25 miles away. This is just amazing. I'm so fortunate. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. That's amazing. And I, I, yeah, I feel like there's the more that I learn about the ocular oncology field, like there's a very small number of ocular oncologists, but they're all so good. Um, and we're all, I think in the States, we obviously have the most ocular oncologists in the world. Um, but we still, I think it's like 50 or less total across the entire country. Um, so how fortunate, um, Calissa, what about you? I know you've kind of got a few pieces to your diagnosis story, um, but let's just focus on initial diagnosis for the moment. Um, so yes, my name is Calissa and in 2010, so it was 13 years ago, I, um, lived in North Carolina at the time and I was having some funny floaters and some funny flashers. They looked like little white bullseyes and crescent moons going in my left, left-handed side of vision. Um, but I just kind of thought, well, I have an appointment in June. I'll just wait. That was probably spring of 2010. I was 31 years old. Um, and then in May, I started noticing this sensation of a shadow over my left eye and I kept putting my hand up there and I could see it. So I was very confused. And then in June, I went for my normal eye appointment and he said, <clears throat> he did a peripheral vision test and all that vision up there, like up here was gone. And he said, so let's do some pictures. And he, the optometrist told me, you have a retinal detachment. Obviously, he wasn't going to give me the bad news. So he sent me to a retinal specialist. It sounds like that's really common. So we went to the retinal specialist, or I did that day. I called my significant other at the time, who is an ex now. But um, we met at the retinal specialist. And he's the one that did the ultrasound and told me that, yes, you do have a uh, retinal detachment but the reason you have it is because there's a tumor in your eyeball and of course it never tumor never entered my mind um so i remember calling my mom from the chair she um, i'm originally from texas so my parents were in texas and i was in north carolina 
and had to call my parents and tell them I had a tumor in my eye. Um, he told me not to go home and Google anything. Of course, I went home and Googled everything and freaked out, but just tried to take, you know, let's see what this is. Um, went to the, I think I had my ocular oncology appointment two weeks later. And I saw Dr. Marithian Jaya back when he was at Duke University. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> I miss him. <laughs> so I saw him and we did the plaque radiation for five days. And the tumor in my eye has been dead ever since. Dead as a doornail. So I'm super thankful for his expertise. And then in 2000, so three years later, I moved to Memphis. And he was super grateful because he knew the doctor in Memphis had been, I guess they had done schooling together. So he was really thankful I was moving to Memphis. And now I see Dr. Matt Wilson and he's been, you know, keeping me good for 10, for 10 years now. And I see him annually. I did do a Vastin injections for a while and then they had me stop. And I have since lost vision in my left eye, but you know, I've gotten used to it. So it's not too big a deal, but that's my oh, initial diagnosis like story. It sounds like like, I think if we were to just capture just the part where people say like, well, then they told me I had a retina tear and then they sent me to a retina specialist. And then the retina specialist was like, you have a tumor. And I was like, that was not on my mind. I feel like if we were to go through and just capture that part of the audio from everybody's interview, it would all be the same. Like that's like almost identical patterns of just, that's how it goes. Makes me, it just makes me feel like, okay, so then we need to be really focusing on educating our ophthalmologists and our optometrists, like they are the ones who are finding this most of the time and referring. So anyway, that's a whole other story, whole other conversation, but segue. Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about, let's talk about like just some of the struggles and some of the things that have been positives for you that have come as a result of this diagnosis. Um, and when I say positives, it's not like a, okay, like, yes, I'm so grateful this happened to me. Like, no, it's, it's more like a, what are the gifts despite all of the struggles and the obstacles, because I think that when we can find those gifts, like that's part of what makes us, you know, able to get up in the morning as patients. Um, so Stephen, what do you feel like have been a couple of the things you've struggled with and what do you feel like have been some of the gifts? Struggles. Um, I, I'm a Midwestern wasp kind of shy, not shy, but we, we don't talk. <laughs> My family doesn't talk about personal things. So the, the, the struggle was when this happened, I really needed to talk. And it was difficult to find someone to talk to. My husband was kind of, oh, oh, no, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine. I needed to talk to someone about, about the fear. Uh, it was frightening. And, and this was before I even went on Google and, and found out what was, what was really happening. Um, and I think the first person I talked to, uh, a, a couple friend of ours were visiting from the West Coast. Uh, one of the couple, uh, they were Jim and Jim, like Bill and Bill. <laughs> one, one of the Jims had just gone through uh, prostate cancer. And we were driving to dinner. I was in the back seat with him and he turned to me and he said, this sucks. And it was the first time I could talk to someone and he wanted to hear what I had to say. Um, you, you find out, I don't want to say you find out who your friends are, but even many of my close friends were like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't, as soon as I wanted to talk about, oh, no, 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 you're, you, no, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was a struggle, finding, finding someone to, to, to talk about it that wanted to hear it. And then uh, I, I got into the, 
the Facebook groups and the Cure Insight, and go, I went to the what the ocular. That's where I went. Met William. I met you in Cleveland at the um, Ocular Melanoma Foundation. The patient probably a patient meeting from them. Yeah, gathering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the retreat or whatever it was. Um, it's like ten years ago, um, right? <laughs> um, and then meeting other eye cancer people. And I had only been in the doctor's office, and, and most of my medical professionals, I had to explain what I had to them. Uh, you know, my primary care physician had, didn't know what it was. Uh, you know, it's, it was, and it was nice to meet people who knew more about this than I knew. Uh, uh, medical professionals, other doctors, other doctors than my ocular oncologist. Um, that, that was nice. But, so that, 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 I guess that's a positive and a negative. No, for sure. I can, I can kind of see um, how you can spin it both ways, for sure. Well, and that, yeah, I will, I'll consider that the, the negative. <laughs> we'll consider that, that the struggle. That struggle. But then, and I guess, I, I mean, I'm a musician. There's a lot of ego that comes with performing. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I guess I, I, I was really worried about my career and how I felt about what other people who thought about me. And this happens and it's like, ah, you know, things change. Um, since 2008, in 2010, I became a yoga teacher. I don't know if I would have done that before. I, I worried so much less about, about my career trajectory and just started doing things that I wanted to do. Became a, a yoga teacher. In 2015, I became a licensed massage therapist. And in 2017, I retired from full-time music work in the church. Uh, I was spending a lot of time in church and um, more than most people do, <laughs> doing a musician, I'm there all the time, and, and became a freelance musician, licensed massage therapist, yoga teacher, and I don't care what other people think about my career. <laughs> you stop caring, uh, you so get that, a cancer that's diagnosis, a big and then positive. there's no rules, and you just say, I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> right. I, it's not that I don't care. I, I, I just do... What I want. Well, you care not about what, what you care about, and you follow do. those passions. Yeah, I, these are things I care about. Yeah. yeah, and not worried about what I need to do, what other people think I need to do. Oh, I love so. that. I think that's that's powerful for sure. Alec, what about you? Struggles, gifts. Um, so I would say, I mean, beyond just the struggle of knowing you have a cancer diagnosis and it's you know malignant and all the yucky that goes along with all of that, um, part of my struggles is explaining this to everybody. People think they know about melanoma already. Um, and so they're like, oh, my cousin had melanoma and they just cut it out and she's fine for 20, you know, um, people who think, ask like, are you in remission? Are you, and trying to get the word out to people like, you're never really in remission. You could have stray cells in your body at any point. And a long time after your surgery, they can come back and, and haunt you. It's hard to explain that to people. People want, clear cut black and white answers about medical things. And they want to kind of put you in a category of you're this type of cancer patient or you're that type. And ocular melanoma is really different from a lot of the other cancers that most people know about already. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's a struggle to have to explain that all the time or to decide, like, I'm just, I'm not in the mood to educate everyone today. So yeah, you're right. And we just move on to something else. Um, the other struggle is having this diagnosis just always hanging over me. You know, I, I'm a pretty positive person, but um, 
you know, every once in a while throughout, the, I'll go through a whole day without thinking about it. And then it just hits me of like, you know, at any point I could get some bad news and being part of all these Facebook groups that we're on, we just, it feels like, especially recently, we're getting a lot of bad news from other OM patients who are getting bad news themselves or passing away. Um, and it just, it's this constant, like, what if, you know, I'm going to wake up and make today the best day I can, but what if, um, and then the last struggle for me was I have kids, you know, when I was diagnosed, my kids were, I think seven and 13 ish, somewhere around there. Uh, and I, I like, wait, that's not part of the plan. I'm supposed to be there to see them graduate and to start their lives and to grow into healthy, responsible adults. And, I might not be there for that. Wait a minute, you know. So that that's been a struggle as well, um, and I have in my head this mental list of milestones for my kids that I'm gonna I want to try and make it to. Uh, and every time I hit one of those milestones, then that becomes one of my celebrations. So, um, and then in terms of celebrations or or gifts, as you were calling them, um, this kind of gave me this diagnosis gave me a kick in the butt about my own lifestyle and my lack of taking care of myself and prioritizing my own health my own mental health, my own physical health over everybody else. So it took, uh, it gave me the opportunity to kind of throw out a lot of habits that I had before. And I changed up my eating. I became vegan. Um, I got back into exercising more. I started a cooking channel called the One-Eyed Cooking Guy. And I make a mess in the kitchen and post it all over the internet. And, um, and I have a lot of fun with that. And I get a lot of positive feedback um, around that as well. Um, and then the other gift is the, this community. I mean, these people that we're in this conversation with right now, I feel like I know all of you. I've met your spouses. I've met your kids. I, but but I haven't because like we're, we're, we're virtual, right? But I feel like we're friends and supporting each other already. So the other gift is, is a found community of people and support and people who get it, you know, when you're having a bad day or you have a question. So that, that would be my response. Thank you. I feel like that's really powerful. Just like kind of all of those things that you talked about, they're all um, very unique. I don't feel like I've had someone cover it in that kind of a way before. So thank you. Um, William, what about you? What do you feel like have been some of the struggles and what do you, have you found as gifts? Sure. Well, struggles, boy, you know, when, so when I first got this diagnosis, as I mentioned earlier, I had six years previously gotten a diagnosis of cutaneous melanoma. So so my initial thought was not this again, you know, and, and just this for, for a period of time, I had this just awful feeling that my body was betraying me, that, that no matter what I was doing, somehow my body was sabotaging the big effort here and trying to kill me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was doing all kinds of things that I thought were pretty healthy, you know, and it didn't matter, you know, um, because my body was was totally had a mind of its own kind of thing. And it was going down a very different path than the rest of me. Um, so, so that, that was tough. That, that didn't last real long, but I definitely had that sense for, for a while. And, 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 and unlike the cutaneous melanoma, um, diagnosis, this seemed so much scarier. Um, they got the cutaneous melanoma early. You know, I had my surgery, I had my, you know, my biopsies and they, they took lymph nodes and everything was, was, was at that point looked pretty promising and good. And I kind of just sort of put it away and got my, you know, quarterly body checks and just, you know, other than that, and, you know, there was always a bunch of biopsies and stuff, but nothing, nothing deadly. So I kind of like put it aside until, until this. Um, and then, so there, there was this big, for me, a real sense of, of isolation, you know, I mean, 
And, and for me, it was, it was, I mean, I had people I could talk to. I have my husband who has been amazing throughout all of this and, um, you know, and family and, and friends and, and stuff. And, but, but I did feel like there was, this is such a, I felt like this was really a unique situation, you know, uh, you know, having a tumor in your eyeball, you know, um, and, and all things that go along with it. And so I felt very isolated and it really, um, meeting then, you know, finding the, the online groups and, 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 and meeting people initially, you know, um, was, was just a, a lifesaver for me. It was like a big, uh, you know, uh, you know, just, just, it, I just felt I came out of a drowning into, 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 into to be able to breathe and, and, and just appreciated so much the stories of the many people who I've become very good friends with, had, had connections with. Um, and so that's been, that's been just an amazing lifeline for me, um, especially in the beginning. You know, this has been going on now, as I said, since 2015. So it's not quite as acute anymore. I don't really think about it that much. Um, I don't really worry. I don't get anxiety that people talk about. You know, when I get my scans, just get them and I don't worry about it. Um, you know, and the other thing that was really a challenge was, you, you know, I was advised, like all of us, to find a a general oncologist. And so I found a general oncologist and I went to see her. And in the first, my first meeting with her, she had never heard of ocular melanoma. Um, and she was, you know, she was so, so good for her that she was upfront about it. And she said, well, we'll learn about this together. You know, and initially I thought that was cute, but then I started to think, you know, I really want an ocular oncologist. I mean, I want a general oncologist who knows more than me. So I, I, I stopped seeing her and, and, and through my ocular oncologist found a general oncologist who you know, has quite a bit of experience at any rate. So, um, so it's just sort of all that isolation. Um, but a really positive thing sort of happened and it happened kind of um, organically in that I wasn't really aware it was happening is just that sense of absolute appreciation of every day, you know, that I wake up and I'm so happy to wake up, you know, and, and, and breathing, you know, I just think about how delicious air tastes, you know, when you, when you really breathe. You know, and I just have just this weird um, appreciation for every moment I get, you know, um, and so far the news has been, has been great. I, have, I don't have anything to worry about, but I know this, you know, as Alex said, this could change any day for any of us. Um, and so if that happens, I'll deal with it. But for now, I just have such an appreciation. Things don't bother me that used to bother me. Um, people don't bother me that may have bothered me before, you know, I, I, I you know, um, I'm retired now, but when I was still working, there was always, you know, the, all the drama that goes on in any group of people that work together. And I always kind of like sat back and thought, well, that's kind of amusing. <laughs> um, and I just, I just have it, uh, I, I just enjoy life so much now. So I, I really, and I, I owe that to my tumor. <laughs> I think that's so powerful. I love what you said about just that appreciation of the everyday um, and I feel like if we could just summarize so far what you each have said as like some of the gifts, it's been just generally like diving into your passions and the community um, and just learning to appreciate every day and just that kind of being present. Um, Calissa, let's go ahead and move over to you. So what do you feel like have been some of the struggles? And you can feel free to allude to anything else that's happened because I know that you've had more happen since your initial diagnosis. Um, and then um, any of the gifts that you feel like you can find? Yeah. Um, for me, the struggle at the very beginning, <clears throat> um, I remember being very confused emotionally because 
he told me, we're going to radiate your eye. We're going to put this plaque in. You're going to be in the hospital for five days. We're going to take it out. Hopefully it'll die and you're done. That's it. And usually cancer treatment is way more involved than that. And so it was really confusing emotionally. Like I had cancer, but it kind of felt like I didn't because all of a sudden it was dead. And I was like, so am I home free now? I mean, I know I'm not. I know there's a chance it could spread. But it was, I just remember it being weird emotionally for me and for my family and for friends. They were like, well, what now? You don't have to get chemo. You don't have to get, you don't have to be sick and lose your hair and all that. So that was interesting to explain to people. And it's even now interesting to talk to people. Um, I just, my sister-in-law has a friend who may have it ironically. And I just spoke to her the other day and I said, it's very weird at first because you're going to either get radiation or a nucleation and then you're done and you just get scans and that's it. And you have to learn to live with this like thing in the background that's kind of just sitting there all the time. Um, so that was interesting. Um, as time passed, I did join, I remember back in 2010, it was like a listserv back then. It wasn't a Facebook group. And I joined it and it was metastatic people and everybody and I couldn't handle it. So I got off of it maybe about six months later and I just lived my life. I actually had, um, I remember I was a nurse, a NICU nurse, and I had a nurse anesthesia interview two weeks after my plaque was taken out. And I was like, do I do this? If I may not live that long, do I go ahead and go to anesthesia school? And I was like, you know what? The cancer kind of made me think, yes, try to not live in fear. You know, live like you're going to live a long time. Live like the anesthesia degree is going to be worth it. So two weeks after plaque removal, I went to my interview, ended up becoming a nurse anesthetist, and I've been one for 10 years. Um, unfortunately, I am now recently on disability, but I'm thankful for that 10 years and it has gotten me in a much more solid place financially, which is a blessing for my wife. Um, so that was at the beginning, 10 years passed. I was, I was, I mean, I really didn't think it was ever going to spread. We did not biopsy my initial tumor at that time. It was kind of unsure if it was safe or not. And Dr. M said, let's, let's not. So I never knew what my chance of metastasis was. Um, and then in 2020, um, I had my routine abdominal CT. We did abdominal. My, my oncologist did CTs of my abdomen. And he saw something in my T10 vertebrae, which, you know, coincidentally, what are the chances of it picking up my T10 vertebrae? And he said it looked really weird. Um, we ended up proceeding to a biopsy and it was metastasis, which just totally threw me for a loop. Um, that was in 2020. So I'm three years out. Um, what the metastasis has done for me, I mean, the struggles are just, I think what anybody would expect thinking about dying, um, knowing that this cancer and barring a miracle or a cure will take me at some point. Um, this anxiety is much more prominent now because every scan, something else pops up. Um, so that's been much harder. I had really gotten to a good place of denial in that 10 years. And so now there's no denying, you know, there's no denial. Um, but the gifts, I would say, <laughs> are more. I mean, I am so thankful for everybody, for everything, for every day, 
for my wife. I'm thankful for my family, for my friends. I mean, the gratitude has changed tremendously for me since the metastasis. Um, the other thing for me, I've always had a very strong faith, never have wavered in that really. Um, and thankfully the spread has made that even stronger. I know that, you know, I just look forward to heaven and for me, that's huge. Um, so that has also grown stronger where some people it can grow weaker and I'm super, super thankful that it has grown stronger and it's also grown stronger for my wife, which is something that I've hoped and prayed for. Um, but I would say now the hardest thing is that I look healthy. I have tumors in a lot of places and, um, liver, lungs, pancreas, breast, all kinds of places. And I look great. And so people don't, they don't see that I get out of breath really easily. They don't see that I'm tired all the time. They don't see the nausea from the clinical trial, things like that. And so it's hard for people to understand what's really happening in my world. And why did she go out on disability six months ago? You know, when up till that, up till six months ago, I was working. Um, so that's been probably the hardest part is people saying you're going to get better. Oh, you'll beat this. You'll beat this. You'll beat this. Um, I almost just want them to be like realistic. So that's been kind of, I would rather people just be realistic and revel in the moment with me that I'm, that I'm good right now. No, that totally makes sense. Um, and I so think I don't that's, know that's that a struggle too, like sense, with but... whether it's initial diagnosis or metastatic. I mean, obviously I think it's, it's maybe more widespread. I mean, literally more widespread in your body when it's metastatic, but, but when you're dealing with the expectations of cancer, right? The expectation of the cancer diagnosis is white hair or you lose your hair or, you know, whatever the media has put out there to sensationalize cancer. And that's just not what we look like. I mean, all of us have maybe vision issues to some degree, but again, that's something we see. That's not something most other people notice. And that's something we experience. It's again, not something other people notice unless like you sideswipe them with the car, like, oops. Um, disclaimer, don't drive next to me. But, um, but I think that that invisible illness, that can be a really, really difficult thing for us to like cope with. And, and um, I think really the only upside to that is having people like you guys to talk to about it because nobody else except for people who have the same kind of invisible illness get it. Um, and that can be really, really powerful in support systems. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about, um, let's talk a little bit about like just learning to advocate for yourself. Um, are there things that you do now that you feel like are different that maybe you would, you would, kind of tell your past self, or like if you could go back and tell your initial diagnosed self, like do this, don't do this. Um, think about like, I guess, yeah, just like what would you tell someone who's newly diagnosed if it were kind of based on your own experience of what you wish had happened or what what might have been better, what would be helpful for advocating, things like that. Um, I guess we'll go back to the beginning. Steven, you're up. What, what would I tell someone? Um... Wow. Um, there's so, it's so cloudy. It, it, I, I don't, there are parts that I don't remember and I don't remember how I felt. So it, it, it's like a fog. It's like, it's, I, I always describe it as coming out of the subway in New York city and you start walking on, on the street and then you're going the wrong way. You don't know which way you're going. Um, so, so you, 
you have no one to rely on other than your your the medical professionals and yourself and who else will uh, help you but but ask for help um, I, I I didn't I, I guess I didn't know how to ask so it was good to find groups of people who were asking for help and have told me yeah there are there are people here in this group that can help you but uh, and another thing is is I, I tell my doctors everything everything I mean why wouldn't I and I think when I first started I was afraid to uh, especially when when the doctors didn't know much about this to say well all right then I will find out things you know or I will go to another doctor uh, and I went through several doctors just that either didn't know how, how to, to treat me or wouldn't uh, you know well you know this is go back to wills go back to your ocular oncologist no they they treated my eye they're not like, gonna they don't they're treat not the gonna rest treat of my body the rest if there's something that happens yeah right I had at, at least two primary care physicians say no I don't treat this you have to go back to to Carol Shields I know Carol Shields doesn't want to talk to me about my liver she treated my eye and now I all right so you you have to you have to, to, to talk. You have to say, you know, if you don't know something, I will find someone who does or, uh, yeah. So that, I guess that's, I, I, or please find out, or I'll find out and, and tell you where, where to go to find the information. Um, and, and, and it's nice being a member of a group where you can say, where can I find out information? Because someone in this group will, knows, has been through this and say, go here, go there. Um, the other thing I, I would say to, to anyone, not just someone with, with uh, eye cancer, is learn to say no. You know, you know no, don't treat me that way. Um, I, I only had one, it wasn't really a bad incident, um, with Dr. Sato. Dr. Sato treats people with metastatic um, eye cancer. It's a, but his... Um, assistant came in and interv interviewed me took all these notes and then sent a letter to my primary care physician and I saw that they sent the letter to me and the letter was wrong half the information was wrong it, it said I was single my husband was in the room while she was interviewing me and said wrote down I was single I so I went back to him like six months later and I showed him the letter I said I, I don't want to do this to you but you need to know and he was horrified but but things are wrong. My age was wrong, and that that Goodness. it's like, like well, you were a my husband person. was in the room, and you wrote down I was single. It, did you do it intentionally, or <laughs> so that? And and that was my only bad experience. I know people have had bad experiences in in the medical field, but if if that's the worst that I had, then I, I I'm lucky. Oh, so. for sure. But yeah, to, to say no, this is wrong. No, you don't don't treat me that way. Uh, or to say yeah, no, just to, to say, say no, 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 I'm, I'm, no, I'm too busy for that. No, sorry, yeah. can't do it. <laughs> well, and to say no too, like I so think that, that's yeah. kind of to say what I guess to segue to Alec. Um, one of the things you had said was that like trying to explain, right? Trying to explain to other doctors, trying to explain to other people um, about your diagnosis, and to to recognize that it's okay as a new patient or a seasoned patient, whatever we want to call ourselves. Um, it's okay to say no and say, eh, I don't really want to talk about cancer today. Like, no thanks. Like, thanks for checking on my eye because that seems to be the only thing you think is affected here. But, but um, no, we're not going to talk about that today. It's my kid's birthday or I just don't want to talk about it. Um, Alec, what about you? What would you say are maybe two, three things you would tell someone brand new to this diagnosis, maybe that you wish you could have told yourself? 
Um, I think the first is a more, I, I think I'm closer to my do diagnosis maybe than some of the other patients on this call right now. So I still remember every second, every detail of Dr. Muthranjaya talking to me and my husband that day. And I think if I were like floating out of my body that day, looking down on the scene, I would remind myself to, that everybody's different in how they respond. And there's no like, I kind of felt like there was a way I was supposed to respond, like you see in the movies and on TV. And when I wasn't responding that way initially, I was like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not doing what everybody else does when they get these diagnoses? And then found myself reacting that way later on. Um, and so I guess I would just, I would say what I, I'm a teacher, I tell my students this, and I tell lots of people this in different situations, that there's no one right way to do anything, you know, like, there's no one right way to come out to your family and tell them you're gay. We all have different experiences with that and with coming out. There's no one, I have two adopted children. Both of their stories and journeys are very different from each other and from all the other adoptive families that I've talked to, we all came to adoption in different ways. So cancer is similar and getting that diagnosis is similar. So I guess the first piece of advice would be to, to react the way you need to react for yourself and to realize that changes. You might react one way one day and that it's totally normal to wake up the next day and have a very different reaction where you fall apart and are much more emotional about things. Um, and then the other thing piggybacks onto what Stephen was just talking about and what you guys were, were just discussing is to be an advocate for yourself. I was so naive about the medical system, about the insurance system, um, about how all of that worked. I used to see stories on TV about these poor people who were facing these horrible diagnoses and all the horror stories of getting these bills and having to do battle with the insurance companies. And I was like, wow, we're so lucky we don't have to do that. And then wham, like now we do. And now they're not gonna let me get a scan. They're denying my scan that my doctor says I need for for my, you know, to make sure I'm staying healthy. And so now I got to call the insurance company to appeal it. And they have, to, I have to make sure they've called my doctor because nobody makes sure that happened. Like there's just the, all this extra stuff. It's like a full-time job of, of advocating. And then once that system gets going, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. It get that part got better. There's less of that that I have to do as I go through this. Um, but I, I would say be ready for, to, to be an advocate and to make sure, like, I was just talking about this with my best friend today. We were talking about the medical system and texting back and forth about it, about how, you know, every, everybody in medicine exists in their own little circuit. And that circuit works really well when you drop into it, but that circuit doesn't connect very well sometimes with all the other ones. Um, mm. and information gets That's lost and misinterpreted or, now all of a sudden you're single, like Stephen just said, or stuff like that gets through. That <laughs> or you your don't diagnosis realize. doesn't count for a prosthetic, right. and um, it's it's not valid in the exceptions. It's like, but but why would it not be? It's an exception. It's, exactly. it's rare. Yeah, just some of those yeah, nuances, or, those those funky little things, they get lost. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I would I would recommend for somebody once you've gone through the initial diagnosis. I'm not saying day one. Obviously, you have a lot to process when you've been given a diagnosis like this, but as things start to settle a little bit and as you know, you're know you moving moving through the process, just make sure you're an advocate for yourself. And along the same lines, um, I would say take notes. I have a great friend who came with me to, um, to many of my initial appointments when I knew I was gonna be out of my head and my husband was gonna be out of his head and we were just, was too upsetting. And she was able to write stuff down. And actually we still reference those notes four years later, there's times where she'll be like, no, I think the doctor said that. And she can go back and look 
and, and it actually has that. I don't know if they'll let you record or whatever, but when you're in those Mine appointments, it's hard. Yeah, it, it's hard to, to keep it all straight. You get home and like, oh, I forgot, I forgot what he said. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I would give that piece of advice too, to try and record as much as you can and keep good records and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and that can be helpful not only for yourself, but also as you referenced, like for the insurance side of things, if you have really good notes about conversations with insurance and like you've talked to this person and that person and they told you this, like just keeping that paper trail can be very important in just um, making sure that you're getting the care that you need and that you're getting the coverage that you really are entitled to with your insurance plan. Steven, you look like you had something to add. No? Okay. You just lean forward. It's fine. We just get to see your lovely face a little closer up. It's fine. All right, William, um, you are up. So I guess, yeah, what would you tell your older self um, or just somebody new to this diagnosis? Oh, I would say to my older self, slow down. You know, I was in such, you know, I got the diagnosis. I was in such a hurry to get this thing out of me, you know, and so I just, you know, I got referred to someone who I'm glad I got referred to. You know, but it never occurred to me there might be other treatment options. You know, I didn't know anything that uh, proton beam is, is a possibility. Uh, obviously, nucleation. I mean, there are all kinds of, of, I mean, I just went whole hog, just get this thing out of me, you know, as quickly as I possibly could. And I think that I, I may have not made any different choices, but I did feel like it happened so quickly and I allowed it to, to just slow down. It's not going to kill me to take a couple of days to, 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 to look into options and, and to check things. You know, it's, it's a quick move. It's quick growing, but it's not that quick growing. Yeah. No, that, um, that so sense of urgency can be down. very scary feeling at first. Yeah. So just trying to recognize, exactly. like you said, that you have time to slow down. You can get a second opinion. Yeah. You can ask for other treatment options if you're not comfortable with the one that's been offered. Very Absolutely. Powerful. And it wasn't even so much that I was uncomfortable as that, I just didn't know that there was other there were other options. I just just moved fast, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, so I tell myself to slow down. The other advice I have um, is, and 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 I'm not saying this. I'm, I, all, all four of us clearly don't need this advice, but I, a lot of people. I, I went to a support group for a while, um, and um, through the local chapter of Gilda's Club, and I was really struck in this support group by how. Um, resentful so many of the people in my support group were towards the people in their life, towards their spouses, their caregivers, um, feeling like they weren't um, being treated, um, like, like I, I don't know, maybe it was my own bias, but I felt like they wanted special treatment because they had cancer. And I felt like they were, it, maybe it's just their opportunity to unload, but it just made me feel like we need to make sure that we're not the whole story because we're not the whole story. Our, our husbands and wives are, are, are part of the story too. They're going through this exactly with us. And they're in some ways it's harder for them because we always know how we're doing. You know, we know, always know how we're feeling and they kind of have to figure it out, you know? And so to take care of your loved ones who are, who are so much a part of this. Um, and I, I did want to say one thing real quick, especially in terms of Alec, your point about taking notes. You know, one really neat thing that happened is I did end up getting to get a consult and uh, something called second generation tissue testing with Bertel D'Amato, who is like, you know, the, the guru of, of, of ocular melanoma. He's actually back in Liverpool now, but for a while he was in the States. 
And he did this thing. He was the most kind, he was the most amazing person. But one thing that he did was he taped the entire, he recorded the entire consult so that I didn't have to take notes, you know, and he did that. He didn't do that for me. He did it for everybody. And he just gave you the little, the little, the little, uh, you know, CD of your, of your visit. So you didn't have to worry about not remembering anything. And I'm just, I was so moved by so many things that I experienced with Dr. D'Amato, but that in particular that I, you know, uh, but we do have that option. We can, you know, we can certainly ask, you know, our practitioners if they don't mind if we, if we tape them. I, I never have felt the need to do that. Um, but I was glad Dr. D'Amato did that for me. Um, yeah, I think but that's, that's kind of like, the, the best I would that's nifty. I didn't know that he did that. Yeah, he was, he was, he is, he was, he is remarkable. I just, I consider myself so fortunate that I was able to, to, to have that testing with him. For sure. Well, thank you, William. I love what you said. Give me just one sec. I have a toddler calling. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Real life, guys. It's uh, 7 o'clock here, so my children are not in bed. Yeah. They are not in bed, but that's okay. Um, all right. So, Calissa, I'm going to go ahead and move over to you. Thank you, Bill. Um, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to piggy. Oh, I was going to piggyback off what he said about recording. Um, <coughs> my metastasis happened in February of 2020. And as we all know, that's where like, the year COVID happened. So all of a sudden, um, my parents, my parents came to visit to support me during the metastatic diagnosis, and they were going to stay with me through the spine radiation. Well, they got stuck here for 10 weeks because of COVID. So they lived with me and my wife for 10 weeks unexpectedly. My mom has Alzheimer's and my dad is blind, believe it or not. So it was just nuts. Well, anyway, only one person could go to appointments. And, you know, we're sitting here learning things. I started um, Opdivo and Yervoy after the radiation. So there was just so much information coming at me at these appointments. And I couldn't bring my dad with me. Um, and I, that's who I would have brought if not for Hillary. So we did start recording. Um, and they knew that. So I just said, you know, I can only bring one person. And my dad wants to know what's going on, too. So, um <coughs> And none of the doctors ever minded me recording the conversations, especially because there was only one person allowed. Hopefully now that's different. Um, <coughs> as far as what I would tell someone, it's really ironic that this is the question, because like I said, on Sunday, Saturday, my sister-in-law found out that her childhood friend may have ocular melanoma, and she is seeing my eye doctor, Dr. Matt Wilson in Memphis tomorrow to find out and have all the testing done. And it was just so crazy. I was sitting on the beach in Destin, Florida, and she hands me the phone to talk to her. And what I found myself saying to her was to have hope. Because I said, you're talking to someone that's 13 years out. You know, it's not a death sentence. It's not like you're going to die tomorrow. I said, and honestly, this is a good time in history to have this disease because so much research is happening and we are making strides. We now know how important the immune system is as opposed to back in the day, they would put people on chemo, you know, and they might die faster. Where now we know that immunotherapy seems to be where we need to target our, you know, put our focus. So I kind of 
encouraged her to see it as like, okay, this is not fun and it's not good, but at least it's happening now. Um, and just trying to see the good side of things. The other advice I would give that I have to give myself every single day is to not feel guilty. Um, it's been really, it took a lot for me to go out on disability. <coughs> and even now I still struggle that I'm on disability. I feel like I should be at the bedside, um, you know, putting people to sleep and doing my job that I love. But I know I couldn't get through a day. I couldn't physically do it, you know, and I just have to accept that. And my wife, Hillary, is she won't let me lift up anything. <laughs> you know, she's just super, super supportive. But I try to accept that <laughs> and not feel guilty that she has to help me in those ways, you know, and just accept that that's where I am right now. And that's why I'm blessed to have her. And, um, but I tell you what, the disability thing is tough. I, I do not like that I have to, that, that that's where I am physically. Um, and I struggle with guilt all the time. And even back in 2010, when I was diagnosed and took, I think I took, like a week off work. I should have taken a little longer. I remember I went back to the NICU bedside with a patch on my eye and I just kept on working. But partly maybe that was good for my, you know, mental status. But at the same time, it might have been good to take a little more time and process what was going on. Um, but guilt is a big one. That's that's really hard oh, for me. Sure. I think that's hard for well, a lot you. of people. Thank you all for sharing. I feel like this has just been a really good conversation. Um, so now let's kind of shift gears for maybe our last 10 minutes, if you guys are okay. And let's just talk a little about what have you guys seen as members of um, the queer community, like as you've come out, as you um, and your spouse have, you know, been together for a number of years, like what have you observed in the medical system or experienced yourself? Um, it could be the positives or the negatives. Um, Steven, what do you, what do you feel like you have to share there? I, I don't really have any negative um, I mean, I live in suburban New York City. I was treated in Philadelphia. I mean, I didn't have to explain who this man was to anyone. Um, I don't, I can't imagine what it would be like in a place less welcoming. Um, but I mean, I, I, I didn't have to, to ask to have him in the room with me, um, but I would have. Uh, and anybody who came in, the, oh, it's my husband. We, we've been together 28 years. <laughs> um, it gets so, hard to count after um, a certain point. Yeah. Could, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I, I guess, I, I guess if, if, if I weren't so positive about it, I, I would bring proof. I don't know, do people have to do that in other parts of the country say here's my marriage certificate this man needs to be in the room with me now I I, I would if I had to but I, I've never had to I had to prove who he was but yeah I mean an advocate for yourself yeah, for sure. uh, to say this is the person I choose to be in here it doesn't matter what whether you know what our relationship is well, and, and that doesn't um, affect your care is, either so. like I mean it, what what does affect your care yeah. is not having your support person with you um, right. For sure. Well, yeah. thank you. Um, Alec, what about you? You had some stuff you wanted to share from kind of a little further back as opposed to now. Yeah. Well, I, I, I share Stephen's sentiment that I, I feel like I, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I feel like it's just a non-issue. You just bring into the room whomever 
you need to bring into the room and nobody bats an eye, nobody asks or says no. Um, but I do have a story that it didn't always used to be that way when uh, many years ago, I don't remember, 25 years ago probably, my husband and I were sitting at home watching TV one night and he's, he had had a stomach ache all day and it just all of a sudden flared up to the point where he's like, I think something's really wrong. We need to go to the ER, brought him in. Um, and he ended up having a pretty bad appendicitis attack going on. And so they brought him to the back, you know, we were in the waiting room, they brought him back and they would not let me back to see him 25 years ago at Stanford university hospital. Um, because I was not family, we weren't legally married. We weren't, you know, I was, I had no legal standing to go in the back and see him. I couldn't see him that most of that night. I couldn't see him until they moved him to a hospital room after his surgery. That's the, when they, he has his appendix out. Um, that was the first time I was allowed to see him at Stanford University Hospital in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. That was their policy. Um, and so now flash forward 25 years later and I get this diagnosis at Stanford University Hospital. Um, and it's like, like I just said, it's a non-issue. It, 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 nobody, they greet my husband with the same warmth and professionalism that they do everybody else. And I feel so lucky. Um, I will say that it's been eye-opening for me to be part of these um, Facebook groups and that there are people who definitely come from other backgrounds who um, the LGBTQ community is something they're not used to, or um, they come from a, a lifestyle or a way of believing that, that sees it as a negative. Um, and that's been kind of eye-opening to me that people in our own community can sometimes have some negative things to say, um, some anti-LGBTQ things to say. Um, and so in that way, I feel like there's still some growing to do and there's still some, but I think that's more of a societal issue. That's not OM specific, obviously, um, but it does filter down even into the OM community a little bit. But Overall, I'd say my experiences are amazing, and Dr. Muthranjaya has just been wonderful. My ocular or my uh, general oncologist has been wonderful. We've had nothing but respectful interactions with everybody, so we're very lucky. Well, thank you for sharing, um, and thank you for just honoring us with the experiences on both ends of the spectrum. I feel like that's just very powerful, um, and. And I guess just to echo what you have said, like I, I can see that as well. Like just as far as the patterns of um, just the way that it, I don't think that, well, it just isn't. The OM community is a small community of people, but we are not exempt from prejudices and, you know, different levels of believing uh, or different types of belief systems that allow space for groups of people or don't. And I think that it, like you said, it, it can be a little bit of a shocker, I think, to just come into a group that is not as accepting of you as you feel like you've had for your whole life or for the majority of, you know, where you're at, where you're at now. So thank you for sharing. Um, William, what about you? Well, first of all, I do want to say, Alec, I am just stunned that even 25 years ago, you had that experience. That just blows me away a little bit. Um, at any rate, so I'm, I'm glad that's changed at Stanford. <laughs> um, but um, my experience has been amazing. You know, I mean, um, you know, I go to, like I said, I get these Avacyn injections every six weeks. So I feel like I kind of live in my ocular oncologist's office and they have been amazing to my husband, you know, and every, you know, he comes in the treatment room with me, you know, when I get the shots, you know, and usually, you know, after the nurses prep me and then all the, all the stuff that getting ready for it, when Dr. Murray comes in to give me the actual injection, uh, my husband is usually rubbing my leg and, you know, doctor, you know, and then it's just like a non-issue, you know, and 
nobody thinks anything about it. And Dr. Murray, after he's done with the shot and takes the little speculum thing out of my eye, you know, and um, he, he always says to Bill, well, he's yours now. And, you know, <laughs> you know and, and, and it says something, you know, it, it just all feels very, um, very, very just normal. You know, um, it, it, I've never in any um, medical setting, either with Dr. Murray or any of the other specialists I see or even regular doctors, I've never had to actually come out to a doctor, you know, um, other than, you know, when they want your history, they sometimes ask you about your sexual orientation. So that may be there in, the, in all those documents that I don't know that they ever actually even read, you know, but anytime that, that Bill is with me, nobody says, who's he, what's he doing here? Um, they make assumptions. I mean, I guess it could be my brother. A lot of people think we look alike, you know. <laughs> so, um, but you know, they they just they they just carry on so that I don't even it, it doesn't even occur to me. I have you know, it just uh, it just seems so completely natural and normal. So and 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 that feels like what life has become, you know. And I'm of an age where. Um, I remember when life was not like this for, for, for us, you know, I'm not quite old enough to remember Stonewall, but <laughs> I'm not that, you know, just a little beyond that. So, um, you know, so the, the freedoms that, that, that my husband and I have as a married couple astound me based on what my expectation was, um, when I was younger. <laughs> Anyway, um, but oh, in terms of the... I feel like that's that's very, um, very good to hear. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Now, I live in, in, a, in an area that where, you know... Well, before we moved here to South Florida, where which, you know, obviously expect some level of, of, of acceptance, you know, and, and um, integration, we lived in a um, very, very rural area of Western Virginia. Um, and, you know, we lived there, and, and people they knew we were gay. They referred to us as the Bills in the same way they might have had the same last name. Um, and, and it, it, you know, I, I actually think that they it bothered more that we were Democrats than anything else. You know, so, um, but anyway, that, you know, I, we, I, we've just had a blessed life in that I, I've not experienced um, homophobia to, you know, I mean, if people are feeling it, they're doing a really good job of, you know, keeping their mouth shut about it, which is all I really can ask. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Calissa, what about you? Um, so when I was first diagnosed in 2010, I was with my ex and we were not married. And, um, I think the only appointments that she went to me, went with to me were the very first ones and then didn't go to any more. So it just never was an issue. I never told anyone I wasn't very out at the time. It wasn't something that I advertised at all. So we didn't have any problems. Um, and I was 31. So when I had my plaque radiation surgery, it was more like my parents were there. So they were the ones that were kind of supporting me through that surgery. Um, now fast forward to the metastasis and thankfully I had met Hillary. We got married six months before the cancer spread. Great first year of marriage, let me tell you. <laughs> but she has come with me, you know, she's always come with me to my appointments ever since we were together. So for the whole for six years of our relationship, she has come with me to my appointments. And we've always been very um, honest. She's my wife. This is my wife, Hillary. And I think for anybody that's listening to this, that's LGBTQA, just be honest and be upfront about it. It really does seem to be so much better these days. Um, I've seen Dr. Marithi and Jaya, and then 
Dr. Wilson in Memphis. He knows that Hillary's my wife. If she happens to not come to an eye appointment with me, he always asks how she's doing. Um, I see Dr. Polera in Memphis. He knows that she's my wife. He's my medical oncologist. And then Dr. McCain is in Nashville for anyone who's going to go see her. She's amazing. None of the nurse practitioners there, her, anybody at the Sarah Cannon Research Institute, they've all been super welcoming. They love Hillary. You know, they're just wonderful. Um, same goes for Philadelphia. A lot of people that listen to this may end up someday in Philadelphia with Dr. Sato's team. Um, we see Dr. Cedar and she's wonderful, loves Hillary. Dr. Eshelman loves Hillary. Everybody loves Hillary. <laughs> so I'm super thankful like to be able to share her with everyone, you know, and that she's my wife and we come as a team and we have had zero issues. Never, ne no one bats an eye. Um, and I'm super thankful for that. I don't think I was thankfully didn't have to, I remember as a kid, you know, in the eighties, like all of that, but I, but I really haven't had to live it since I've been out myself. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, but yeah, the medical community is wonderful with it these days, it seems. And I had a major spine surgery in, uh, February for, for metastasis and not, I mean, everyone that took care of me, there was never a question. Oh, that's amazing. Hillary was who they well, called. And, and kind of to allude to a little bit of what so. you said towards the end there is that, mm -hmm. If you are someone in the LGBTQA plus community who is experiencing poor medical care for whatever reason, you have the ability and the grounds to seek other care and you should, right? And I, I think that that's generally what we kind of all came to the conclusion before this call is just that like, if you're not getting as good of care as you guys are able to communicate, you've been able to have that you are feeling supported, that you're treated humanely, that you're just treated like a person because you are then you should seek care elsewhere. And um, I know we've had just a handful of the ocular melanoma patients who, who have been um, at some stage in their journey just discriminated against. And it's been really unfortunate to hear about those circumstances, but they also took their care elsewhere because that's, that's the power of the medical system. Plus with, with, with HIPAA, um, it, they may not want to share information with people who are not on the form, not because they're gay but because you didn't give permission so if you do have a partner you do have yes. a spouse put them on the form you can share information and then they will right it may not be a homophobia well, and, and another issue. issue to think about that i didn't think about it until now is for maybe someone who hasn't come out to their general public and family yet your medical records are only for you and anyone you give permission to disclose them and so that means your doctor is, their hands are tied. They can't tell anyone. And so it does, it only does you good to tell who your partner is, who your, who your spouse is, who your support system is, and can, you know, keep that line of communication open with your doctor because a good doctor will not, they will not disclose anything that they're not, well, they're just not supposed to disclose anything about their patients. That's just part of being a doctor. No, oh, I love that. All right. Well. Also yes, illegal. it's illegal. Like it's literally <laughs> a illegal. Legal issue too. <laughs> HIPAA comes in big time right there. Well, you guys, thank you so much, everyone, for being a part of this call, for being a part of this conversation. Um, is there anything anyone feels like they want to add as we close out? Okay. Well, I'd just like to add something. I would like to thank you, Danette. I think you've done a wonderful job. Well, thank you. 
Thank you, thank and, you. And, 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 and with a toddler. Yes. And, 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 no, <laughs> I know. Oh, sorry, guys. I had to, like, literally get out of my chair. It's like, children, no, stop knocking on the door. <laughs> so I'm going to go, and, I'm gonna go build I'll, a castle I'll, with them. I'd like to thank you, too, for acknowledging, um, for having a cure in sight, acknowledging Pride Month and for bringing on people from the queer yeah. community to, mm -hmm. to have our voices magnified this month as well. It, it feels very... Um, welcoming and like we all belong to a cure insight and um so thank you uh, to you and to the cure insight community in total you you know what you can title this a queer insight okay, there we go. i love that that's so much better than the title i came up with hey i'm writing that down william you get to coin that phrase next that's awesome. I know, right? No, seriously, you guys have been amazing. And it's been so good to talk with you all. Um, thank you for your time. And we will see you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.